Recovery Elevator episode 154. My main strategy right now for 2018 is to actually reach out and say something instead of sitting in my room and kind of fighting my brain. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 1,230 days. On today's podcast, we've got Stephen. He's 29 years old. He's from Queensland, Australia, and he's been sober for 12 days at the time of the recording. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I've been doing the private recovery groups, Cafe RE, for quite some time now. A common question I see posted in these groups is, does anybody have experience with naltrexone, Anabuse, or Camprol? These are pills designed to get the brain back on track after alcohol has left the system, and also pills designed to block the euphoric feelings, and another pill is designed to basically reject alcohol when we ingest it. So in this podcast episode, we're going to talk about these three pills, as well as one of my favorite podcast episodes of all time by Radiolab called The Fix. There will be a link to the Radiolab podcast at recoveryelevator.com, episode 154 show notes, or you can find it in the show notes of whatever podcast media player you're using right now. So one interesting thing about these medications, these quick fix pills, is that in all of the 12-step meetings I've been to, and I've been to hundreds of them, I don't recall this ever being a topic. Of course, it's not a 12-step topic, but I don't recall anybody ever mentioning it, saying, oh, I was on Anabuse, oh, I was on Naltrexone or whatnot. It's, I don't want to say it's shunned upon in the 12-step recovery world, but it's kind of just something that people don't talk about or they don't use. And in fact, in the Radiolab episode, it talks about how 1% to 2% of people are ever prescribed these pills. That may be because of the efficacy. I don't know. That may be because addiction and the medical scientific community are so separated. I don't know why. And I am surprised that I personally do not have experience with these pills. What I mean is when I first tried to get sober, I searched high and low for quick fixes for pills. I went on ADD meds. I went on antidepressants. I didn't really want to do the work. In fact, last podcast episode, the half measures availed us nothing. I did a lot of half measures. I didn't really want to put in the work. So I'm actually surprised I never took these medicines. Okay, let's dive in and let's first talk about disulfiram, aka Anabuse. 
This was approved in the United States in the mid-1940s. And what this is intended to do is inhibit the acetaldehyde dehydrogenase causing sickness. So when you drink, you're going to feel flushing, you're going to feel nausea, you're going to get a headache, you're going to get sweating, weakness, increased blood pressure. So when alcohol is ingested, you basically get an instant hangover. Now with disulfiram, this does not reduce the cravings in general. In fact, none of these reduce cravings. But the main point of an abuse is to ingest an extremely unpleasant reaction when alcohol is ingested. And of all the research that I did on anabuse disulfiram, which has been prescribed for decades to help with alcoholism, I found that this is not a cure. In fact, I found that United States National Institutes of Health says disulfiram is not a cure for alcoholism when disulfiram anabused use alone without proper motivation and supportive therapy it is unlikely that it will have any real effect on the drinking pattern of the chronic alcoholic next let's talk about naltrexone which the fda approved in 1984. So naltrexone blocks brain opioid receptors. It eliminates euphoria associated with alcohol use, makes alcohol use less rewarding, it does not cause sickness, and it also does not reduce cravings. Now, you might have heard the word opioid receptors and say, wait a second, this is alcohol. We're not talking about opioids, painkillers, heroin here. Well, if you look at the molecule of alcohol versus the molecule of an opioid, they are almost identical and they react to the same part of the brain. So, unlike anabuse, which causes a violent reaction, almost like an instant hangover, you can throw up and feel you know, increased blood pressure, nausea, sweating instantly after ingesting it. Now, Trexone, it basically blocks the high that we get from alcohol. So two totally different reactions. They both don't help with cravings and they both don't help with withdrawal symptoms if we take a pills just to help with the withdrawal process from alcohol. Now, let's talk about a camprosate or a camprol. A camprosate is the third medication after disulfiram and abuse and naltrexone to receive U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approval for post-withdrawal maintenance of alcohol abstinence. This is the first new medication approved for this purpose in over a decade. The FDA approved a camprosate in July 2004. It became available in the United States in January 2005 under the trade name Camprol. Now, a camprosate has been used for nearly 20 years prior in Europe where it has been found to be safe and effective for treating alcohol dependence. So how does a camprosate or camprol work? What does it do to the brain? Well, it is not completely understood. It appears to modulate and normalize the alcohol-disrupted brain activity, particularly in the GABA and the glutamate neurotransmitter systems of the brain. So Camprol does not cause sickness if you drink after you if you take camprol. It also does not block the high. What camprol does by affecting the GABA and the glutamate neurotransmitter systems is it regulates the brain, puts the brain back at a normal state, supposedly at a faster rate after we withdraw from alcohol. Again, camprol does not help with the withdrawal effects with the negative symptoms from withdrawing from alcohol, but it helps regulate the brain, put the brain back on track after we quit drinking. So those are the three most common drugs. Again, the first one to come out is disulfiram or anabuse. And this causes a violent reaction or an instant hangover when we drink. The next one that was approved by the FDA is naltrexone. This blocks the brain opioid receptors. This blocks the high that we get when we first drink. Now, naltrexone is probably the most popular. Like I mentioned, when I see this question posted in Cafe RE, the question usually revolves, does anyone have experience with naltrexone? 
Naltrexone has been paired with normal drinking. I've heard people taking naltrexone to moderate to control their drinking. So that's why it's the most popular one. Most alcoholics, including myself for a long time, I had an obsession with finding a way to drink normally, hence spurring the popularity of naltrexone. And then the third one that came out in 2004 is a camprosate or camprol. Again, this is supposed to put the brain back on track at a faster clip. Our brain completely has to rewire itself after we stop drinking. And the brain will overshoot the mark, it will undershoot the mark, overshoot the mark, undershoot the mark, hence the post-acute withdrawal symptoms, and that's where that comes from. So camprol is supposed to help with that. So some good news about these drugs is they are not scheduled drugs and they do not pose a risk of dependence or addiction. So the question I'm sure you're asking yourself right now is, do these drugs work? Again, I do not have personal experience with it, but after doing Recovery Elevator for a couple of years, chatting with many people who have taken these drugs is no, they don't work in the long run. And the reason why, in my opinion, is because alcoholism is a three-part disease. It's physical, mental, and spiritual. These pills only address the physical component of the disease. That leaves 66% of the disease completely unchecked. And let's look at antabuse for a second. The pill is only effective if you take it. What happens, for example, if it's our birthday? We've got a long weekend, there's a holiday or a wedding coming up, and we choose to not take the pill. There are some definite holes in the effectiveness of this strategy using antabuse. So earlier in this podcast, I talk about Radiolab has a podcast episode called The Fix. In that episode, they talk about a guy named Billy who describes his alcohol use disorder. He says he was drinking 20 to 25 drinks a day. Billy eventually asked for help and went to rehab. Billy relapsed after rehab and then went back to treatment. The second time out of rehab, Billy relapsed at the airport on the way back home. So in the span of four years, Billy tried seven different rehab facilities with no success. Billy talks about how he went to 28 AA meetings in one week. He went to 120 meetings in 70 days. So at age 29, Billy found himself with severe pancreatitis. The doctors then put him on naltrexone where he could limit his drinking to two to six drinks a night. Again, this is a huge improvement from 20 to 25. Billy found that on naltrexone, he was able to drink moderately, which is all he wanted. Billy said there was no compulsion to keep going and going. He said the drink still tasted just as good, but didn't get the same rush in the head. The podcast host then says in a skeptical voice, so Billy, then you're cured? And Billy says while on naltrexone for a couple months, he was okay. But what happened was one weekend, Billy decided not to take it. He said there was just some part of him that missed being drunk. He said while taking naltrexone, he still couldn't imagine, couldn't see a life without alcohol. Billy talks about how there was this huge void in his life while taking naltrexone. Russell Brand talks about this void in his book called Recovery. And he says that unless we have something to fill this void, we cannot be successful in recovery. And naltrexone and abuse and camperol do not fill this void. So shortly after starting naltrexone, while still drinking moderately, air quotes, shall we say, Billy lost his girlfriend. He lost his job. He was beginning to isolate. Billy says he's going to go back to meetings just to be around people who were in the same boat. This would be community. So like I mentioned, these drugs don't work because it only addresses a fraction of the disease. It doesn't address the cravings. 
It doesn't address the feeling that we want to be drunk, and it doesn't address the huge void in our life when you remove alcohol. If you do have experience with these drugs, more of long-term experience taking naltrexone and abuse Camprol for more than three to four months, email me. I'm curious. I want to learn more about your story. So before we get to the interviewee, I also want to cover a couple cool points that they discuss in The Fix by Radiolab. So there's a big separation between the medical community and the addiction community. And where did this start? It says, well, we go back about 80 years in the 30s where we had TB, tuberculosis wards. And then after World War II, there was a cure for TB. So at the time when AA was formed, the founders went to these hospitals, which now had huge empty TB wards because there was a cure. And they said, give us these TB wards and we'll make them alcoholism wards. So this was the beginning of the separation of the addiction community and the medical community. One community, the medical sciences community, resorting to medicines, and then the AA community saying, you need to resort to a higher power. I found that nugget of information extremely interesting and I wanted to share that with you. And also at the end of the Fix episode, according to Anna Rose Childress, a woman interviewed in the Fix, she says, ironically, people with addictions are the fittest of the fit in evolutionary terms. They are the people who would have been the earliest to find food, the earliest to find a mate to find warmth, to travel just a little bit further in the cold to find shelter. We have enhanced dopamine receptors. So our, our dopamine receptors are extremely sensitive. And for most of the time, we're talking thousands of years, this was a blessing. But in today's world, it kind of backfires. Okay, and now let's hear from Stephen. Stephen, how are you? Uh, good, thanks. How are you? Um, fantastic. Thanks for asking. Stephen, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober 12 days now. Would have been closer to 30 because I had another drink drink on the New Year's Eve, but it's still a work in progress, I guess. Work in progress, indeed. And Stephen, before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Stephen? Uh, so I'm 29. I'm from Brisbane in the state of Queensland, Australia. I'm a graphic and web designer by a trade of nine years now, and I'm a recent graduate of uh, nutritional medicine, and I'm currently starting to look at my own uh, home clinic, potentially specializing in mental health and neurological-related conditions. I'm actually recently engaged and due to get married this year, big on fitness, use the gym as an activity to keep me focused and I just uh, I love reading I read a lot <laughs> nice congratulations on the engagement that sounds great and uh, what, what are you reading right now I actually read a lot of Tim Ferriss books a lot of self-help books yeah so the one I'm reading now is actually called tribal mentors and it's just got a whole bunch of tactics that I can use to kind of stay focused just help me achieve better results in career and personal stuff like that yeah in the height of my drinking i was actually practicing tim ferris's the four-hour work week yeah yeah not so much because i had masters his principles and his strategies it was mostly because i was only able to work about four hours a week because i was shit-faced most of the time so yeah <laughs> but uh yeah four-hour work week that's a great self-help yeah. but you know business development book is an awesome book but uh yeah steven let's back it up a little bit you're 29 years old Yep. When did you first start to realize that perhaps you didn't drink normally? I've actually been thinking about that because I always go back and I think of different events and I'm like, oh, it could be then, it could be then. But I think the main 
factor was when I realized I couldn't just have a quiet night. You know, I'd go from, I'd have the one drink and you go to five and to seven. The next day you've, you've got a hangover. And then it gradually got worse and you start to have three-day benders and I'd literally start losing days of work just because I struggled to actually stop drinking. And I think that's probably, the, that was the tipping point, just realizing like, oh, you know, this is actually a serious issue. Like I literally, I can't stop. <laughs> you mentioned the word progress. Talk to me about the progression because what you said resonated a lot with me. I couldn't just have a quiet night. And, you know, in my early 20s, late teens, I was a normal drinker. But, yeah. you know, when we were going to go out and drink, it was there was never the night of have like one or two and just, you know, call it quits. They were always big balls to the wall nights. And so talk to me more about the progression of how that happened. You said, couldn't quite have a quiet night. And then it progressed into three-day binges and you were losing days at work. Talk to me more about that progression. It kind of, uh, in regards to progression, it's more so like I, I, I would wake up in the morning and and because I, I, you know, no one likes the, the feeling of a hangover. So I would, you know, just stay drunk <laughs> because I knew that that, it, that felt better than, being hung over yeah that's what kind of kept me lead on to leading to those other days of, of, of drinking yeah i was in a lot of trouble towards the end of my drinking with you know i, I kind of like you just mentioned i'm like oh i found a loophole into this if if i had any <laughs> yeah. alcohol in my system which usually you know with some hangovers there was always a little bit of alcohol in my system but my tolerance was getting higher and higher if I would wake yeah. up and I was still like a little bit tipsy, a little bit drunk, and this is where it got scary because I didn't know when if my binges were going to be one day binges or two or three or four or five days. If I woke up and had alcohol in my system, it was still nearly impossible to stop drinking. So that's when the trips to the gas station would happen at 7 a.m., the liquor store yeah. and things like that. But I know what you mean. And you get a hangover or you know, you're like almost completely sobered up and you're like, oh, wait a second. If I just keep drinking. Just, yeah. Yeah. Sweet, I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm a sorcerer here with my feelings and my physical feelings, and but it all catches up to you. And talk to me about that. Was it like a rock bottom moment you experienced on twelve thirty two thousand seventeen, or was yeah what happened there? No, it wasn't a, a rock bottom moment. I think it was just a bit of a, a bit of a lapse in judgment. One thing I found that uh, you mentioned that you wake up and you're still kind of tipsy. I found that. If you've had so much the night before and you wake up tipsy, you've got so much less self-control to go, no, I'm done. And that's what I've kind of found. Like, if, if you can, if you go to bed, you wake up and you're still hung, you're still, you're still drunk. You kind of lose the control to actually stop because you, you or your sense of control is out the window. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's the off switch that I've heard a lot on this podcast. And it's the same with myself. Yeah. As soon as we start, it's the off switch is impossible to find or you just you just can't flip it off. It's incredibly hard to stop drinking. And, and give us a little background maybe on your drinking career. And did you ever put any rules to place to moderate your drinking or was it just one and done when you quit on 1230? I mean, I've tried all the, the I guess, the general strategies. So oh, when I was younger, i you know, I, I my rule was, you know, I never drink during the day. It's always at night. And then it would lead on to me and my friends would have drinks during the day because we had, we had, you know, one of the weekends off. Or So that rule went out the window. 
say it was, you know, another rule, you know, no drinking between these times or in the morning you can't drink. You have to sober up first. And I think throughout throughout my, um, I guess, relationship with alcohol, those strategies started to go out the window. I've I've been down the pathway of, of using antabuse and, I mean, that didn't work either because of the cost involved in having to buy the the tablets. Yeah, and I can well, your first rule there maybe laugh because I'm thinking about our situation right here. Right now it's seven fourteen a.m. in Bozeman, Montana, and I could wake up with that rule and be like, oh, "I'm not drinking during the day." Wait a second, it's midnight. It's twelve fourteen. Well, it's also a.m. <laughs> in Australia, so it's nighttime in Australia. Let's yeah. go get drunk and tell us more about an abuse. I'm actually curious about that, and let me, I'm going to pull up a link real quick that I was reading. Yeah. Um, just the other day about antabuse. And so this is disulfiram, if I'm not... Uh, yeah, that's it. I think, is that the generic name? or I think antabuse is the generic name, but uh, it, it basically inhibits aldehyde dehydrogenase, causing sickness, you know, flushing, nausea, headache, sweating, weakness, increasing of blood pressure when alcohol is ingested. But it doesn't necessarily yeah. reduce the craving over the long period of time. So tell us... You know, in the private groups, Cafe RE, there's a lot of chat about, hey, is there anybody who has experience with naltrexone, disulfiram, or like I can't, or Camprol, shall we say? But talk to us about your experience with disulfiram. Yeah, I mean, it actually got me my longest period of sobriety. I think the longest for me was three months, and the only downside is because I've I've actually. I've done a because I've, I've done a course in uh, nutritional medicine. We're kind of big on the whole uh, holistic approach, so to treat the underlying cause. And the thing with the tablets is, it's more of a, it's sort of a more of a symptom thing. So you have to keep taking it to, I guess, to stop being 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 able to drink alcohol because you because of the side effects. But it doesn't it doesn't fix the long term, I guess, psychological like addiction. It kind of just. You're kind of scared from it because if you take if you, if you take the antabuse tablet, you know if you drink, you'll feel sick. Boom! I, I think you just dropped a value bomb right there. When it comes <laughs> to these tablets, you know, the cure to alcoholism in pill format, it is uh, it's what you just said. It doesn't really address the underlying issue, and in the long term, there there's a lot of holes in the sales there. Um, you know, for example, alcoholism is a three-part disease, spiritual, physical, and mental, but these pills really only address the physical component and they only address, you know, after you take the drink, they don't, they don't address the cravings. So like you mentioned, yeah, I've, I've personally not gone down this route, which surprised me actually, because I have searched high and low for many quick fix treatments, you know, for depression, for ADD, and I'm still kind of dealing with that coming off those meds that I went on when I was drinking. Yeah, this is one of those ones that I, I didn't go down this road surprisingly. But uh, so this time you're not using Anabuse? Is that what I'm hearing from you? No, I'm not using it now because, well, if thinking back, I, I think I went through two bottles of it, which was, I think that was, I think I, I think I was half tablet, doing half tablets, and that got me to three months. The thing is, I got to three months, and I had one tablet left, and I looked at it, and I'm like, you know what, I could just save this and just go off it, because I think I'm, I think I'm, like, in my mind, I'm like, I think I'm good now, I think I'm, I think I'm cured, but, uh, yeah, but I'm not on them now, no, not working for me, it didn't work for me. Yeah, and I'm, I'm probably going to get an email after I say this, but 
I've been doing this for a while and I haven't read or heard of somebody who's been on naltrexone and abuse or Camprol for the long term and has been successful in their sobriety. I want to use that term successful loosely, but um, I've I've read about a lot of people getting two, three months into sobriety and think um, for that, there are some benefits to kickstarting sobriety. But in the long run, like you mentioned, there's a lot of underlying issues that are not addressed. And some of the differences between mm-hmm. anabuse, anabuse gives extremely uncomfortable side effects after alcohol is ingested. And then naltrexone yeah. blocks brain opioid receptors. And you might hear the word opioid and be like, wait a second, mm-hmm. alcohol, opioid, two different things. Actually, if you break down the molecule, if you were to write it down on a whiteboard, the molecule of opioids and the molecule of ethanol alcohol, they almost look identical. It's, it's amazing. But with naltrexone, yeah. it eliminates the euphoria associated with alcohol use. So basically, you drink it, you're expecting to get buzzed that high, it just doesn't happen. So abuse makes you throw up. Naltrexone, you drink it and you go, what the F? I'm not feeling anything. <laughs> and Camprol, which is kind of a different class, it, it acts with the GABA and the glutamate transmitter systems in the brain. It does not cause sickness if alcohol is ingested, but it reduces craving for alcohol. So I know it's not a big part of your story, but um, I've, I've seen a lot of, of you know, dialogue about that in the, in the cafe area groups. And so I know some listeners right now are like, oh, what are the differences? So let's That's talk so about good. your story uh, a little bit more. And, and so you yep, mentioned um, you would have had 30 days of sobriety on the 30th of December. But and let, me, let me just say as well, like what a great day to get sober. And, and I'm, a, I'm a firm believer yeah. that today is you have the very best chance of getting sober because this disease is progressive. But why not one mm. one two thousand eighteen? How come twelve thirty? Yeah, that's why I'm kind of like, you know, it's two thousand eighteen. This is a good. This is a good year to actually, actually, you know, step it up and put more strategies into place. I guess try new things. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about that. Yeah, what are some strategies you're going to put into place? Because right now you've got twelve days of sobriety. What are some strategies you're going to put into place to get thirteen, fourteen, get that first thirty, not first thirty, but get another thirty days and keep moving forward. Well, a lot of for me is sort of trying to keep myself busy. Uh, I mean, not in the sense of trying to cram all these things in my day and get overwhelmed because I do I, I do find that I, I can sometimes do that because with my ad- addiction, uh, I also, uh, I've also noticed that I have an addictive personality. And so not just with alcohol, but with just being addicted to things in general. Give you an example, like some weeks I'll, I'll go to the gym and then I'll go to the gym the next day and the next day and then realize that I'm burning myself out because I'm stuck in a, a kind of addictive loop, which is what I've noticed. But uh, I guess one thing this year is I want to just really focus on my career. So all my career change from graphic design to uh, nutritional medicine. So putting strategies into place to get my own clinic up and potentially actually even meditate more because I've, I found out that worked really well to keep my mind less reactive last year. So I kind of want to uh, maybe look into a, a transcendent, transcendental meditation, I think that's what it's called, uh, course, but um, still kind of slowly touching on that start of this year. I think these are all fantastic goals. You know, meditation is, is never something where you can check off the list. I, I did my yeah. 2018 goals and meditation is on there as well. And I looked back and it was also on 2017, 16, 15 and 14. So I think that's an awesome one. Um, I'm just going to share my experience with you. If you keep moving yeah. forward, which I hope you do. And I think you will with sobriety. There's a pink cloud, which I hope arrives to you. 
And when I first got sober, I had I had three small businesses at that moment. I got sober and I thought I could wow. take on the world, which is a common thread with entrepreneurs who get sober. The, my only advice is, is take it slow. You, you've probably heard, don't make any large changes in the first year of sobriety. Yeah. I got sober and I started a business as long as well with these three other businesses. And right around the first year of sobriety, I, I found myself signing payroll checks. I had 15 people on payroll subcontractors it was it was a, it was a beast and then i spent like another year and a half in sobriety kind of taming the beast and you almost scaling down again i looked at your website stephenbrumwell.com the graphic design website and it looks mm-hmm. like you're a very talented individual watch out world <laughs> once you remove the alcohol i'm excited to see where you can go down the yeah. road with this you know let's let's talk a little bit about alcohol and and just the the damage it can do like what have you felt that you've lost to alcohol I think the, the the main thing I lost, and I, I kind of see it as a positive, uh, like it's it's an it's much it's, to me it's more of a positive now when I look back. I lost a lot of friends over the years um, just from poor choices with alcohol, and you know not 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 be, being able to make the right choices because of lack of judgment. But I look back and I'm like, it's they were kind of positives because that was the kind of group that I hung out with that wanted to go out and get hammered and. You know, wake up next day and do it again. So in, in a way it was bad, but in another way it was a good thing. It, it helped me get rid of the unnecessary people that were potentially or could have potentially made it worse. So um, th- that's like the one thing I've, I've lost. The other thing I, I, I did have a bit of a, a run into with alcohol was I, I had a relationship that kind of went down like as soon as this is before my current, uh, my fiance now, uh, when she found out that I was a bit of an, a, a an alcohol abuser she didn't like it and she was gone but again mm-hmm. i looked back at that i looked back at that and that was also a positive because now i have my fiance uh, rose and she's like she's the opposite she's very supportive so uh, you know everything has come out positive anyway so yeah you, you mentioned rose sounds like a, a rose. sweetheart i really like that name <laughs> that she's very supportive yeah. And it doesn't really matter where I was in my addiction and with a lot of us that, that alcohol is, is, is a tremendous filter, friend and family filter. If we allow ourselves to use it to our advantage. And like you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's been girls that I've been on dates with, you know, I'm like, even though I've been sober for a certain amount of time, there have not been second dates. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. I have a crappy haircut. I don't know. It could be because of the sobriety, but that's one and done, which in my opinion is a good thing. You don't, I didn't need to go to five, 10 dates to, to figure out it wasn't a good fit. So I think it's a good thing. Um, mm, yeah. And Steven, you're 29 years old. What advice would you give to your younger self, the Steven of say 19, 15, 25? Oh, in regards to drinking? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's keep it consistent with the podcast theme, or whatever you want. Actually, <laughs> I, I guess if you if you put it in 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 a in a more general sense, but also in that kind of realm, is is you don't need to go out and hit the nightclubs up to have fun because that's something I always did in my younger self in my early twenties. And another thing was one thing I I, I did. This is when I first um, came across alcohol. Is I used to play a lot, of, a lot of video games and I still do now a lot of PC games and PlayStation games but I used to I used to drink and do it and because I used to do that back when I was young the association is still there so now when I want to sit down and play the PlayStation it's harder to break that connection so yeah one bit of, a bit of advice would be to go back and probably 
don't drink while playing games <laughs> and especially driving games yeah yeah and yeah just you, you don't need to go out to nightclubs and spend you know two hundred dollars on drinks to have fun you can actually do a lot more you know a lot of other things without that you don't need it <laughs> yeah and we, we've heard that aa is kind of like a cult and things like that but to me the other way around sounds more of the cult where you got to go out and you need to spend copious amounts of, of money on on a on a liquid to have fun and enjoy the evening i mean that sounds more cultish to me than, than aa but and that's also a word we yeah. have not heard yet in this interview is aa is yeah is is that something you have tried or or how, how are you doing it how are you getting sober i have like I, uh, like a year ago I, I googled it and i thought about it you know i've I've looked at it, and after listening to your podcast for you know, dozens of episodes, I, I I really want to think about it this year because I'd like you to just do it in a sense of accountability and and because that's really big, and and just the community sense to to, to I'd love to deal with other people who have the same problem because a lot of my friends are normal drinkers and it's kind of hard for them to relate back, <laughs> like. It's really hard to try and describe the the feeling of your mind where it's trying to rationalize your next drink. Absolutely, and that's the insanity of the disease. The brain can go in weird places, and, and but you, you mentioned two words there, which which are obvious value bombs. We've heard a lot on this podcast, which is accountability and community. Okay, so I was in a doctor's office yesterday talking to a doctor. She's talking to me about addiction and how hard it is for them to to treat it. You know, this was like a general mm. practitioner. And all I said, it was like, you know, AA is community. That is the most important thing you're going to get out of Alcoholics Anonymous. The most important thing you're going to get out of smart recovery, out of cafe RE, out of refuge recovery, it's community. Yeah, you're going to learn a lot of tools and tricks, but it's the people that you meet. And, mm-hmm. and the accountability is huge because the community will create the accountability. It kind of just, that's just how it works. So yeah, I highly recommend you give it a shot regardless of what yeah. avenue you go down. Um, it, it, it's, um, I can only share from experience here, but it, it's extremely important to hang out with other like-minded individuals. And last two podcast episodes ago, I talked about how I went to Foo Fight a Foo Fighters concert with. Oh the, yeah, yeah. The guy I interviewed is my one of my best friends. It was like episode four or five, and it was a two and a half hour drive there, two and a half hour drive back, and the drive alone was better than the concert. Sorry, Foo Fighters <laughs> con- fans out there. It's been a <laughs> third eye blind concert, maybe a little different, but just the connection in the car ride. We talked about alcohol not forcing a conversation. It's just where it goes. It's a huge thing we have in mm. common. Yeah. And I highly recommend you try to just try to, you know, define those relationships. But yeah, with, within 12 days of sobriety, I, you've probably had cravings and, and when they do come, what do you do? What I, what I've been trying to do, um, like recently the tactics of the, the, like my recent tactics were trying to try and wait it out, which hasn't worked, and I've only just recently gone, because um, I'm actually a member of my church, a church locally, and I went to my pastor, and we're actually looking into a community that I can go to, which comes back to AA, but we've got our own like kind of group communities, which will help, which will be, so that'll be my new strategy to manage cravings, mm-hmm. I'll have someone to call when the cravings actually come up, that's, that's my main, my main strategy right now for 2018, is to actually reach out and say something instead of sitting in my room and kind of fighting my brain because mm-hmm. that is like I think that for me in cravings that's probably the hardest thing that I've had to deal with and I mean the cravings like I could go I could literally go a month without cravings and then all of a sudden one week I'm like oh 
you know, I could really go for a drink. And part of me in regards to that has led me down a, um, my uh, natural medicine path of, of, of doing research and studies and, and, and uh, I guess, um, treatments, natural treatments to stop that. But, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I, I like that a lot. Um, you know, unfortunately there, none of the strategies are easy. I've tried them all. No. It's not like when a craving comes, eat a donut and then you feel better. It just <laughs> doesn't work that way. I've tried it, but you know, the, the cravings have a lifespan of about 20 minutes and that usually works. Yeah. I didn't set timers before, but like, you know, nine out of 10 that works. But then there's one, I remember in Lisa Brady. Yeah. It's, I, I used to like trick myself, say, all right, we're going to drink after we go to this meeting. We're going to drink after we go to the gym. And sometimes it's yeah, like a full day of that of tricking yourself. And even yeah. that doesn't work. But the best strategy you just mentioned it is reaching out for help, which is also yeah. one of the hardest ones when you get a craving to pick is, up that yeah. phone. And that's why, um, you know, some of these online groups, I've like cafe already, um, it is awesome because you can just get on instantly and talk about it. But it, that's why that community is so important to pick up the phone. Um, I think it's a great direction to move forward in 2018. Um, and Stephen, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer awesome. these questions within 30, to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All righty, my man. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, I think the worst memory was when I was out at a pub with a couple of friends and I decided to go outside and sit on, on, on the edge of a, like a garden edge, like a, a bench. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm waking up on the ground with the ambulance flashing lights in my eyes and apparently I'd passed out and hit my head on the pavement, just lights out, bang, ended up in hospital, the head shaved to get stitches and that was kind of like a, it wasn't a pleasant time because I had to explain that at work as well. <laughs> yeah, Stephen, uh, you, you, you went for a new haircut there. What what What's up? <laughs> I, I actually ended up shaving all my head because like, they, they shaved a little spot to do the stitches and then I actually ended up shaving it all off because it didn't look ridiculous. Yeah, for uniformity <laughs> purposes, I imagine. Next question, we've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh shit moment indicating that you really can't control what you're drinking? I did actually. Um, when I was on one of my three to four day benders, I had went out because um, our bottle shops don't open until 10 o'clock over here I went out at that time probably still slightly sleep deprived slash hungover slash I could have been a number of things but um, as I was driving behind someone because of the sleep sleep deprivation my lack of judgment wasn't there and luckily we weren't going fast but I ended up rear-ending the back of the car and I didn't have proper insurance then so I had to contact my brother-in-law and because I couldn't afford the the, the costs of a, a company to do it we had to source the parts and rebuild it rebuild it ourselves so i was without a car for two months so that was a, a bit of a oh shit moment yeah yeah definitely and and steven next question what's your plan in sobriety moving forward for 2018 is take one day at a time and just keep setting positive goals for the day slowly shift my career to nutrition and continue learning on how i can help others with mental health stay fit and keep setting fitness goals. I think for me this year is setting goals, positive goals, and just looking up. I think you just mentioned a big one, learning how to help others with mental health, yep. learning how to help others with blank. I mean, that's a huge part in my recovery as well. And next question, you've been doing sobriety for a little bit of time now. What's your favorite resource in recovery? Obviously, your podcast is my biggest one. Um, well, thank you for listening to me. <laughs> I appreciate that. Like, 
<laughs> a podcasting in general is, is generally big. Uh, if I go to the gym, I'm not listening to music, I'm listening to podcasts. So I'm listening to Tim Ferriss, I'm listening to motivational podcasts, listen to Ben Greenfield Fitness, just continue, continue learning. Books, so a couple of books that I've read for recovery is Seven Weeks to Sobriety and Brain in Balance. They're pretty good books. Did you say Seven Weeks to Sobriety? Yes. Okay. That's the, what the book's called. Yep. Well, what, what, and what, just happens, get, what happens if a book comes out that's titled Six Weeks to Sobriety? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Have you ever I'm, seen that? I think it's something about Mary it. where Ben Stiller's in the car. He's talking to the guy about like eight minute abs, and the guy's like, "Well, what happens if somebody comes out with seven minute abs?" <laughs> it's like this this whole conversation. Look, I don't, I don't know what happens. You can't get your heart rate up in seven minutes, and if you haven't seen the movie, sorry about that. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I've, I've seen it, yeah, but okay. it's true though. Like, I don't know where they got the seven weeks, but you know, um, if there's five, you know, I think people are going to be buying that first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both on the same bookshelf. It's like. It's like three years to sobriety or three days to sobriety. Yeah, I know which one I'm going to pick up. Um, yeah. yeah. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? You're not alone and you always have choice. You are the sole um, choice maker of your life. And, you know, as I mentioned before, reaching out. You have people around you, whether it be AA, family, church communities. There's always someone willing to help you. you just got to ask. Um, if you don't ask, you can't get help. You know, that's simple as that. Yep. And for a long time, I did do it on my own and it was tough. So I totally yeah. agree with that. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Think of the long-term benefits, especially your health. Like if you can stop drinking now, you will most likely live a lot longer. Uh, and one thing I've always, I keep telling myself, which I guess is another bit of um, self-help advice for myself, is think about the ripple effect that alcohol does to your family and health. So what you do, your hangover, I know you, you might just be hungover, but it also, what you do ripple outs to your family, whether it be a fiance or a girlfriend or um, your work, it, it, it affects more than just you. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And before we depart, Stephen, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you get up early on a working day and the first thing you decide to drink is a double vodka before deciding if you're going to uh, actually go to work that day. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing, but in the moment, that was probably pretty painful. So, yeah. 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 Um, but it's true. that You shouldn't be. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe like a coffee or an orange juice is what normal people that do. Might help. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. Much appreciated. Best of luck. Right. I know you're going to get day 13, 14, and much more time in the future. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Okay, Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Uh-huh.